What's challenging as a pastor, at least for me, about Advent and the, the celebration of Jesus' incarnation, the, mis, the mysterious theological moment and historic moment where God became flesh is that you're very familiar with that story. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, in America, we have these symbols for Christmas, some of which are pagan, some are Christian, and... Um, And I like that. I like that our culture is aware of Christmas. There are things about it I don't like, um, and we can talk about that because I assume there are some of you that dislike it even more than me, the symbolism and things like that, and others of you, you can't get enough of it. And there are things about the actual story from the scripture that we are very familiar with, the angels, the third shift guys, the shepherds that were the first uh, some of the first witnesses and heralds. Um, not sure we talk about John the Baptist as much as we should relative to the importance of this moment and his role in this moment, but we're familiar with John the Baptist. Uh, manger. Everyone knows about the manger. Pretty much anything that Linus mentioned, we're familiar with from a scriptural standpoint. And there are the other things that are in the same texts in the first chapters of Matthew and especially the first chapters of Luke that we kind of resist, Right? Uh, we don't know as much about Simeon and, and Anna. They're less celebrated characters. Uh, Herod massacred a number of children, and that just really doesn't flow with how people want to feel about Advent, and so we don't talk about that quite as much. Uh, Elizabeth and Zachariah's story is beautiful, um, but challenging. And so there are the odd things that we remember about Advent and the odd things that we overlook, and to me, what's most odd about especially Mary's role in the story is it's so different than the rest of Scripture. I mean, I don't, have you read the Bible? First of all, I think it's more interesting than a lot of people think it is. But second of all, it's got to be like 95 to 98% of the characters are pretty goofy. They kind of look like not great characters. Kind of look like idiots sometimes. I mean, really, have you, are you familiar with this in, in the text? And yet, that's not what happens at this part of the story. But do you know the story of Adam and Eve? Do you know the story of Cain? Do you know what Noah did right after he got off the boat? Do you know about Abraham and how he talked to kings about his marriage? Do you know about Isaac and Jacob and Esau and all of Jacob's son? And you think I'm exaggerating? If you're bored and this sermon's not interesting, Google what Reuben did. Just... Uh, It's bananas. And what's more bananas about it than what he did is, it's in the scriptures. And why is it in the scriptures? Because the scripture is the story of God's pursuit of his people. It's not this lineup of men and women that we are supposed to act like. If they're heroes of the faith, it's because they were grasped by the love of God. And in the midst of their imperfections and limits... And sins, sometimes aggressive, sometimes passive-aggressive. Joseph is like the most passive-aggressive character I've ever read about in a story. Not Jesus's Joseph. Joseph from the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Maybe the most passive-aggressive character I've ever read about in literature. Moses, Gideon, Aaron. You know Jonah wrote Jonah? Probably. Have you thought about that? Such a racist... So judgmental. And he probably wrote the book. Because the story is about God's redeeming, pursuing love 
even for a prophet. And you're like, I thought it was Advent. Why are we talking about Jonah? Because I think the reason that the Advent stories are not like that is because the people, both individually and as a nation, were so marginalized. They were under an occupied power. It was an incredibly patriarchal society. And here is the Lord entering the scene in the flesh, giving some of the first theological revelations of the New Testament to a teenage girl. So I think the reason in this moment, later we'll actually see some of Mary's blind spots, not later in this sermon, I'll talk about it next week. But as a probably teenager, she acts with incredible faith and piety. And and what we notice is it's largely because she was in a position where she was oppressed and marginalized, and that's actually where Christianity flourishes. Another figure of the scripture that we don't know a bunch of any blind spots or sins about is Daniel. Why? He was in Babylon, where his faith was all he had. And so it flourished. So this odd story and this beautiful song from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. As Mary learns what's about to happen from the angel, she bursts into song, filled with the Holy Spirit. She says this, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And the reason I brought up the oddness of her circumstance and how piously and faithfully she responded to the angel is it's not only the substance of what she said, it's the giver of the, or it's the speaker that I want us to notice. That's why the series is called The Beat Poets of the Incarnation. It's not the powerful. It's not the wealthy. It's not the religious leaders. It's not the learned. It's an oppressed and marginalized in multiple ways handful of people who begin to teach us about the incarnation of God. God is bringing freedom and life to all who fear him. I'll talk about fear in just a minute. To all who receive his mercy. And he's telling us that not only with the words, but through the deliverer of the words. Through this woman who could not have owned property who lived in a culture so patriarchal that when she got married, her husband could divorce her with three sentences spoken aloud and it was over. Not to mention the Romans occupying the nation of Israel. And God, in his pursuing love to us, begins to teach us about new life in Christ 
through Mary. Who we do call blessed, not necessarily more blessed than any other human in terms of salvation, but her role is a very celebrated role. And in that, our imaginations need to be pushed a little bit and we need to remember that the Romans were occupying Israel, that she had so few rights. And have you thought about her emotions as she walked through the town? So I think she was full of hope and fully confident of God. And someone would look at her and she'd still be mentally fully confident in God and what he said. But she wondered what they thought. And she might have felt a little bit of shame. She wasn't ashamed, but she might have felt it. Or she might have felt anger. And the reason I'm pressing on that is if we notice how challenging her situation is and the amount of hope that she was full of because of the Holy Spirit, then we remember why this story matters to us internally, with our own emotions. The odd story in the beautiful song teach us the story, and the story is one of, of salvation. When she says, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation, that's the beginning of the New Testament explaining that we can't save ourselves. There is no salvation except in trusting Christ. And I know that fear is a really negative word in the 21st century. Can I postulate that we have a shallow relationship with the word with that word fear compared to the way the scriptures use the word fear the scripture uses the word fear as in awe if god exists not a god not a more powerful human if god exists we are naturally in awe of that especially if he's going to pursue us in love and atone for our sin which he's beginning to understand through the holy spirit that naturally produces a reverence and awe in us. Right? Not fear like when you think you're about to get into a car wreck. That's being startled. That's being nervous about physical danger. This is such a larger word. And throughout the scriptures, it's used like this. And I know that some of us are like, but fear is bad. And, and our understanding of, of the word biblically needs to grow. The story also involves judgment. When she says he has shown strength with his arm, this is an image used throughout, especially the Old Testament, for God's judgment. Because he does judge. And it's so important. Similarly to fear, we have this negative relationship to the word judgment because we don't want someone to look at us and think that we're less than human than them and we don't want to do that to them on our good days. But the word judgment has a larger definition biblically. And as we reflect on these men and women that were waiting for the consolation of Israel, we are also waiting, you and me, for Jesus to return and set all things to rights. They are not set to rights today. We are still in the presence of sickness and disease and there isn't a governmental system and there isn't a culture that will give justice to every human. But it will happen. And that's part of our Christian hope. And hope isn't, gosh, I hope it's going to happen. Christian hope, again, it's a bigger word like fear and like judgment. It's a robust word. We hope, we know He will return. And we use the word hope to remind us that 
we're waiting expectantly. And that that is a profound part of the Christian faith, as Jeff reminded us of last week in his sermon. Mary will know in just a few years the importance of justice when Herod massacres babies. She'll know more emotionally and more profoundly the need for her little son to do his work, go to heaven, and then return and set things to rights. And the story is one of salvation and of justice and of mercy. And what happens when we are grasped by the story, what happens when we come to understand it, is we are drawn to worship. This is such a worshipful group of verses. My soul magnifies the Lord, Mary says. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. This is even more profound than a lot of the Psalms. A lot of the Psalms, will, they'll speak to their soul, which is good. Better than listening to your soul, which oftentimes can be discouraging. Speak to it about the promises of God. Mary is magnifying the Lord with her soul because she's so encouraged by the filling of the Holy Spirit. She calls Him mighty. She calls Him holy. She speaks about His mercy and fear, and fear with a good definition. She knows that His justice will fill the earth, and she's worshiping. I'm really curious how many of you like Christmas music. I'm not on social media as much as I used to because it really stresses me out. But I I do love this time of year when uh, some people start talking about how early Christmas music starts getting played in stores. And some of you like all Christmas songs. Some of you only like the Christian-y ones. Some of you don't like any of it. And yet, we are creatures most alive when we're worshiping. And worship is internal. And worship is amongst friends. And worship is taking a minute on your lunch break. And worship is talking with your friends about the promises of God. It isn't just any one of those things. And so if you don't like Christmas music, that's okay. I hope that you have other worship songs that you enjoy singing. Every Christian song is a Christmas song. Mary is full of the Holy Spirit and she speaks about this and she's speaking to her soul. Even as her soul magnifies the Lord, she's worshiping it. Do you know what it does? And it's going to sound kind of individualistic for a minute. And I'm going to explain to you, hopefully, with great clarity, why it's not. When she worships, it's a reminder of the promises of God. And so she's 16 or 17 or 18 and she's confident in the Lord and His promises and then she's walking down the street and people are looking at her and she feels ashamed. Not unconfidently in God, but wondering what they're thinking. And she learns to speak to her soul about what is true about God and what He has promised her, both corporately and individually to her. Maybe she wasn't prone to shame though. Some of you aren't prone to shame. Maybe she was prone to anger. 
That'd be fun. I feel like that would disrupt our pictures of Mary if we found out that she's, so, you know, like some of you, she sees injustice really quickly and it makes her mad and she has to go over and right wrongs of people she didn't even know. And so someone glances at her at the grocery store. They didn't have grocery stores, but someone glances at her at the grocery store and she's like, you don't understand what the angel said. You know, I don't, maybe she was angry. And some of your anger is, is good. But what I want to remind you is that as a worshiping human, we speak to God about the promises He has made to us, corporately and individually. And our anger is either removed or made more pure. Some of us, it's fear. Mary was afraid of what people thought. She felt that way. Without lacking confidence in God and His promises, you can still feel a certain way. Perhaps late at night or early in the morning, these emotions are stronger in you. And what we do in response to them is we learn to worship like she did in song and in prayer and in conversation and in community. And at this point, you're like, this kind of sounds like Christian self-help. This is actually what we're called to do and it drives us into our role in our neighborhoods and challenging families and places of business as a lover of God and neighbor. You see, in, a, in, in, it, in its worst moments, as far as I can tell, the Christian right makes it all about personal salvation. And the Christian left makes it all about faith in action. It's both. The atone, the Christ's sacrifice atoning for us, justification by faith, is essential to the New Testament and to the Scriptures over here. And it drives us to action. Action is not salvation, but salvation produces action. And our worship, learning internally and in community to worship as Mary did, is a response to our hearts about the promises of God to us, and it sends us out into the world as agents of peace and neighbor love. Just in this text, what are the promises? Savior. You praise God that He is your Savior? I hope that you do. She calls Him God, which is such a relief that there is a God and we are not Him. Mercy is promised. And it's such a sweet promise. Judgment and justice with a right definition is a promise of God that we remember. It gives peace and hope to our hearts as it did Mary. She even references the fact that he keeps his promises because like us, she knew a lot of people that didn't keep their promises. And so she's reminding God of how great it is that he keeps his promises. And she's reminding her soul of how great it is that he keeps her, his promises. So this odd story in that we have this marginalized, very young woman write some of the first words of the New Testament to teach us the story and to draw us to worship as the Holy Spirit drew her to worship. Would you pray with me?
Father in heaven, you have called many of these men and women to yourself. You have been born again in them and drawn them to new life. Now, Holy Spirit, would you draw their souls to magnify you this morning and on Tuesday afternoon and on Thursday night and this week. Father, would you do the same for me? Would you teach us your promises and would you teach us to rely on your promises and would you teach us to worship in light of those great promises? And as we either enjoy or endure this season, Father, would you stretch our imaginations to picture the historical fact of your incarnation? Would you help us to respond in faith to your great faithfulness to us in sending your Son? Amen.